Democrat Laura Curran, the first woman elected county executive on Long Island, breaking a glass ceiling and vowing to break with the past. Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. Entertaining and informative. Thought-provoking conversations that get right to the point. Observers say her future is bright. You're here to tell us more about it, Laura Curran. Now here's Laura Curran. Hi, happy Mother's Day, everyone. So big news this past week was the migrant crisis. I have some great guests coming up to talk about that. And towards the end of the show, we're going to talk about something that didn't make a lot of news, but actually was kind of a big deal on the cannabis front here in New York. So we're going to get into that with Brad Racino. Uh, and also at the very end, I want to take your calls. I love talking to the listeners of WABC. The number is 800-848-WABC. That's 848-9222. Lots to digest. But first, uh, you know, I want to wish a happy Mother's Day to the moms, but also to the unofficial mothers, the nannies, the neighbors, the teachers, the men who often have to step into the breach. Uh, but there is a growing ambivalence about motherhood and parenthood in general among the younger folks, the millennials and the Gen Zs. I don't know if you realize this, Christian, but the U.S. has seen birth rates decline 20 percent between 20, uh, 2007 and 2020. So I know you're in that in that age group. Are you hearing ambivalence from your peers about becoming parents? Um, well, that's that's an interesting question, Laura. Um, yeah. I actually, when I lived in Georgia, I've noticed that in the South, there's like a different type of, uh, you know, way of thinking when it comes to being a parent and and how young uh, people tend to be, you yeah. know, when when they're parents. Um, and here, I've noticed like a lot of the younger generation, um, and I guess older generation as well, uh, when they were younger, <clears throat> they tend to not have uh, kids till a little later. Is yeah. It, I, I mean, I don't know. That's that's what I've seen. So I, I'm not sure if it's 100 percent accurate, but makes sense. Yeah. That's a good that's a good anecdotal thing. Uh, you know, one concern that I have with the declining fertility rates is that we're going to have an aging population. With, which means fewer workers, fewer people paying into the safety net, and more people actually needing the safety net. So that's not great. And we could also see a bigger uh, reluctant, excuse me, more of a uh, of a need for more immigration here in the United States and in Europe. They're seeing that as well. More workers that need to come in. But anyway, speaking of immigration, we saw last week, last Thursday, the pandemic era Title 42 expired. Now, it wasn't as chaotic as was predicted, but it really shined a light on the migrant issue here in America. There's a lot of blame. There's a lot of buck passing, but there's certainly not a lot of solutions. So to help us zoom out and see this issue with more context is my first guest. His name is Michael Balboni. He was a Republican state legislator for many years. He was known for working across county lines and winning in an ever more dem-leaning district. He was appointed by Governor, then-Governor, Elliot Spister to head up public safety, so overseeing homeland security and criminal justice agencies for the entire state, and then left government for the private sector and is founder of Redland Strategies, which is a consulting firm really at the intersection of public safety, government relations and media relations. Michael, welcome to Cut to the Chase. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Laura, and uh, happy Mother's Day to you, too. Thank you very much. Back at you. So, Michael, I want to start with the blame. Uh, There's a lot of blame going around. The Biden administration says Congress needs to fix it. The Republicans are saying this falls squarely on Biden's lack of leadership. Biden's, meanwhile, getting criticized from the right and the left. Who's right? This is a problem that has existed for decades. This is not the invention or the dereliction of any one administration. This is something that uh, comes really at the heart of the, the, the debate as to what immigration should be in this country. And so to say that one administration didn't fund it the right way, didn't have the right strategies, I mean, you can say the same thing with Trump's wall. You could say the same thing during the Obama era as to what we were doing with people who were in the state. How do we make sure that they're working, that they have the right papers to work? Now, this has gone on for, for a very long time. Right. And it has, it has become a very hot touch point, really because of what happened recently in the last you know year or so. There were folks that, that down in Texas and in, um, in, in uh, Florida basically said, oh, yeah, 
you guys think this is a problem now? We've had a problem for a long time. We're now going to ship these folks to you, yep. which people sat there and said, that is so cynical. That is such a terrible thing to do. And, you know, you could argue that one way or the other. But the thing you can't argue is, is now put a focus on this problem, not just at the border. That's absolutely right. And it leaves because of the inaction on the federal level. I mean, in just in today's New York Times, it says there is not once in the 21st century, you know, the 23 years of the 21st century, has Congress managed to send a comprehensive immigration bill to the president's desk. So there have been attempts. There have been noble attempts, but they've not. They've all gone south. So what happens is because of this inability to come up with solution on the federal level, where I believe it rightly belongs, it's pitting governors against mayors, against county executives, because they're the ones who have to deal with these actual human beings who are coming into their jurisdictions. You know, Laura, you have the personal experience of, of dealing with the normal stream of crisis that any local government, especially large governments right. like New York City, have to deal with. Yeah. And what everyone should take a minute and think about is that – so there's Mayor Adams. Whether you like him or you don't, I had a chance to serve him in the legislature. I like him. Um, but he is faced with this issue that came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. He didn't budget for this. You, you, know, you didn't anticipate it to be in 2022 that you would have to put this kind of money into this type of a topic and try to put these resources on the table because they're not there. You know, th That's the thing. How do you bust a budget to do this? And so what you say is, all right, what about the state? How are we going to get help there? Right. You know, Since you have we, you have experience right. at the state, that's that's something I'm going to ask you. Is there a role for the state here? Without a doubt. And I think that Governor Hochul has been asking the Biden administration for um, dollars to help. But she's also asking that she's looking at resources here within the city itself, because it really is a multi-jurisdictional response. Right. You know, the, the, the state has these huge armories. One of the uh, one of the assets of the state that I got a chance to work with directly to the National Guard, they have these huge armories. Then you've got these other programs. You know, we've taken a lot of youth detention facilities, and they're no longer being used, drug treatment facilities. There is open space hmm. within some of these state facilities. And then, of course, there's the ability to, to build space. You know, the Roosevelt Hotel um, that just came online, and that's going to be helping families. Right, the, right in Midtown Manhattan. Right in Midtown Manhattan. So what this is at the local – I look at this three ways, Laura. There's the local immediate level where you say, okay, there's a short-term resource allocation like a armory. Then there's the longer term where you take facilities that have been closed like Roosevelt Hotel, and now you bring them forward and you say, okay, for the next couple of weeks as we transition, here you go. You can use these. And then a longer-term solution, but you need the intake center. The other thing that Roosevelt Hotel is going to be is an intake center. And that's going to actually try to give people all sorts of counseling, whether it's jobs or it is psychological counseling. But there is the point right now where it's really bad. If you if migrants are arriving on city streets and they're saying, we start from zero, that's exactly wrong. And that's where you get to the next issue, which is, so what are the federal government? What should the federal government be doing? Mm -hmm. The federal government should be looking not at the uh, just at the border. That's very important. It should be looking at places like Venezuela. It should be looking at choke points across the entire Central America um, uh, space where people make these journeys. And there should be efforts to have folks screened outside the country so that you don't have people arriving here with no options. Right. That is what's going to really be a disaster for government to try to react to that. You know, there's a lot of concern uh, when you talk about you know, you don't know who's coming in. There's a lot of concern about people who may not have been vaccinated for polio or tuberculosis. Right. You know, there could be a public health crisis, which would be terrible for many, many reasons. But it would also fuel a lot of hatred for these folks who are coming along with everything else. Yeah. How can how can I mean, what is it that needs to happen to set up these kinds of centers outside of the country? Uh, when you talk about crises in places like Venezuela and Haiti and Cuba, which is bringing, you know, causing so many folks to want to come to these, this wonderful country. We should take a look at this from the same, through the same lens as we would with the um, drug trade. Hmm. In other words, if we knew that a country was sending drugs to, to, on our streets to poison our children, we would do everything we can to get that government to stop it at the local level. A combination of threats and actions that we were going that you can come and 
and take people off the street who are doing this, but also incentives. You know, this is we have to create this partnership that these folks are leaving. They shouldn't just say, well, this is now somebody else's problem. They should be made to pay a tab to the, the countries that these people go to because they're kind of creating the problems to begin with. They yeah. shouldn't get off scot-free. Now, if their economy is suffering, okay, work those partnerships. But this must be a full-time diplomatic effort because this is a crisis, and it's not going to stop anytime soon. No, in fact, it looks like it's going to get worse. There's a huge displacement of people throughout the world right now. Uh, 71 million displaced people, uh, that's assumed, by the end of 2022, up from 59 million at the end for 2021, uh, thinking is because of war. Climate disaster. So you think about what's happening in the Ukraine, the devastating right. floods in Pakistan. So uh, things going on in Asia, a lot of Chinese coming to the southern border as well. So when you're at the southern border, and you think of the southern border, you think mostly Mexico, Central America. But you've got Asians, you've got Europeans, right. you've got uh, Africans coming as well. Right. So remember I said that there were three aspects I was looking at. Yeah. The local response, right, using state and city assets. The diplomatic response trying to go down into the countries that are generating a lot of the, the migrant workers. And then there's the, the, the border response. All you need to do to understand what a terrible crisis this is to go to, to travel to El Paso, Texas, hmm. where there is a tent city that's gone on there. They do not have the proper sanitation facilities. There's absolutely no educational capabilities. There's no intake center there. Wow. And the folks in El Paso have been dealing with this for a very long time. In fact, many Texas communities have had this really, really difficult situation going on for a very long time. And so the federal government needs to sit back and say, you know what? We're going to put politics aside. We know that there's a lot of differences of opinions on how to run this country. But we're going to get in there, and we're going to try to provide those resources so that when folks do come across the border, they're met with folks who understand their plights and be able to have you know, some type of resources for them. But, Laura, I don't want to be totally negative. There are two things that we should think about. One is, you know why everyone's coming here? Because the United States still is the number one destination for people that's right. who want to travel. Yeah, outside. think about that. that. That's a big part of it. Yes. Right. And and so that, that says a good thing about us as a nation yes. and the way we live our lives. The second piece is post-pandemic, there are so many industries that do not have workers. They just don't have workers. Yeah. You know, healthcare, entertainment, restaurants. Um, agriculture, you know, transportation, agriculture, they do not have the workers. So what we have to do is put on the American ingenuity hat mm-hmm. and say, OK, how do we streamline getting people shelter, getting people screened, getting people in a position where they can work and a path to citizenship? Mm-hmm. Should they want it? You know, these are the types of things we have to focus on now. It is doable. It is doable. But I, I'm concerned that in our political climate right now, I don't know if it's going to happen, and I, it worries me. It really does. Do you have that same concern, Michael? As By the way, I'm speaking to Michael Balboni of Redland Strategies. You're listening to WABC, and I'm Laura Curran. Sorry, Mike. Go ahead. <laughs> um, you know, I, I am an optimist. I've always been an optimist, and, and I really always admired those who decide that they're going to serve in government. Mm-hmm. And I think that notwithstanding a, a lot of um, – a lot of folks who say nasty things about folks in office. I think there are a lot of very fine people. I agree. For the right reasons. I agree. Um, and, I, and I think this is that they will, that collectively, the, the political class will respond to this crisis. And I guess what we have to do as the public is we have to sit back and kind of tune out the noise and support folks who put good ideas together and decide that they're going to try to take this on because it's not going to be easy. If you say you're, you're giving people – the ability to work in this country without becoming citizens is going to be a whole bunch of people sit there and say, wait a minute, well, I came, my parents came through Ellis Island, or I went to the immigration system. Well, it's a slap in the face. We dealt with this when we were in, in, in office, Laura, you and I. We mm-hmm. always had those folks who said, wait, well, what about we had to do it right and they don't? Mm-hmm. How do you do that? But at the same time, you have people sit back and say, there is a need for a workforce. These people are here. It's not, it's not an academic exercise. They're here. They're human beings. They are human they beings. be treated from a humanitarian issue. Now, this is not an issue about homelessness. This is a humanitarian issue. 
And if the federal government does not come up with these solutions, I'm concerned that the relations will continue to fray among governors. You know, I mean, just the perfect example is Governor Abbott, sick of this in his state. You can't blame the guy sending them to, quote unquote, sanctuary cities. So now you have, you know, Mayor Adams, with whom I empathize greatly, having to feed, house, care for thousands of people, up to a thousand a day coming, 61,000 since last spring. Now he's asking for Orange County, Rockland County, Yonkers to help out. They don't want to do it, and you can't blame them either, you know, and nobody's the bad guy here. They're just trying to handle this and fix this problem. It's almost like, you know, the the parents have gone out and abandoned the children, and and it's Lord of the Flies. They're trying to figure it out amongst themselves without the proper resources. Well, well, leadership and resources is absolutely what we need right now. Leadership and resources, amen. Yeah. And and I think the governor is is trying to put something together on this. Um, she is. It's not just a plea to uh, Biden. She's actually willing to put resources into this and use some of the state's assets. The city, obviously, Mayor Adams is trying to do the same thing. The question becomes, how do you tackle this from a regional perspective, but also from a sustainability perspective? Because, again, we all acknowledge that there are 61,000 folks that are here today. Yeah. Who knows if that number doesn't double in the next year? And what does that do? to a whole set of issues from housing to transportation to the economy. Yeah, and I think of public health as well. The other thing I think about is if there is disorder at the border, if there's if there's not like you say those 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 stations where people can be sorted out and their needs assessed, uh you're going to see the cartels, you're going to see the coyotes right. getting richer and more powerful and of course we know what happens with that. Yeah. So we have borders for a reason. You know, when you take a look at the uh, – sometimes I'm, I'm having some discussions with my friends who sit there and say, why do we even need a border? I said, well, imagine it, if you didn't have a border and anybody could walk through. What would the United States be? How would you prevent folks who want to do bad here? You know, one of the things we, we really don't talk about enough from my perspective is the fentanyl crisis, yeah. which is killing young Americans every day. Yep. And we don't talk about – so where is that coming? How do we stem that tide? How do we stop that? How do we put those folks who put that poison on our street in jail? Well, that's an issue. You can't even begin to tackle that if you don't have effective border enforcement. And then the other thing is, you know, Laura, you know my background. I'm never too – I never look too far away from the fact that, unfortunately, this is still a dangerous world. And there are folks out there who you know, want to do the United States wrong. And so from a terrorism perspective, from a preparing a battle space perspective – there's a whole bunch of things that we need to have visibility in who's coming across that border. And you're right, the cartels and the folks who want to uh, traffic in drugs and um, children and prostitution, they, they love chaos at the borders. Yeah. You know? and, and they thrive on the numbers of folks, and they're basically using the immigration issue as a, as a, as a way to do business. Michael Balboni, a former state legislator, former head of public safety for New York State, founder of Redland Strategies. I think the biggest takeaway from this conversation is we need leadership, we need grown-ups, and we need smart distribution of resources to handle this problem because it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse if the folks in charge, if the grown-ups can't control it. So, Mike, I want to thank you so much for coming on, and it's always good to talk to you. Yes, thank you very much, Laura. Have a good afternoon. Take care. All right, listeners. uh, Up next, I'm going to speak with Monsignor Jim Lasanti. He is a Roman Catholic pastor in Massapequa Park. He's also uh, got a podcast, he's got a radio show, he's on TV all the time, and he's got really interesting things to say about the migrant crisis from a Christian perspective. So Monsignor Lasant, you guys probably have heard of him and seen him on Fox News and WABC. Coming up next on Cut to the Chase. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. Observers say her future is bright. Here to tell us more about it, Laura Curran. 
Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. One, welcome back to Cut to the Chase. Uh, at the end of this show, I want to take your calls, 800-848-WABC. That's always a lot of fun. So that was a great conversation with Michael Balboni about, you know, a snapshot of where we are in the migrant crisis and the, the real lack of leadership that uh, so many local officials are struggling with, having to deal with people from other countries, migrants coming into their communities, their states, their counties, their cities, uh, without the proper resources to handle it all. Uh, I wanted to get an interesting perspective from a friend of mine. His name is Monsignor Jim Lasanti. He is the pastor of Our Lady of Lords Church in Massapequa Park on Long Island. I have been to his church. It's beautiful, and he always does an amazing sermon. And something that he's spoken a lot about is the migrant crisis. Uh, he's written four books. He's a regular contributor on Fox and ABC News. He's got a wonderful podcast and radio show called Personally Speaking on the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM. I'm um, talking to everyone from Vanessa Williams to Derek Jeter to Lydia Bastanich and everyone in between. Uh, Monsignor Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, Laura, thanks for having me on. And I've got to say from the outset, it is wonderful to know that you're there in that, you know, with all due respect to ABC and the programs, there's so many of the uh, program uh, programs used to focus on Republicans and conservatives, people of one particular point of view. And you have always struck me as an open-minded person in public life who happens to be a Democrat, but is open to looking at both sides of everything. And if we had more of people like you in public life, I think we'd all do much better. So I'm delighted that you're at ABC on this program. Well, I really appreciate that. That's very kind of you. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Sure. So I have been in your church uh, where you have spoken about the migrant issue. And I know that Massapequa Park is not a bastion of liberalness. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Um, tell, you know, let, let the listeners know a sense of, of how you feel about this. And then I, I'm curious to know if you ever get pushback from your congregants on, on your message of, of, of true Christianity. Very good questions. And, uh, Laura, you know, even though this area tends to be Republican and conservative, uh, I think they're very fair-minded people in our community. And they all know, too, what is essentially what I've been saying, which is none of us came to this country with every advantage. Quite the opposite. We were uh, – our forebears were lucky to get out of their country to come here in the hope that America represented an improvement in the lives of their, their families, their children, their grandchildren. So everybody here knows we, we are, as John Kennedy said a long time ago, a nation of immigrants. So there's there's essentially a sense of, you know, we, we do know we've got to make people welcome in our country, that the future of our country depends on that so-called melting pot, people from every land. Uh, what I'd like to say to them, which gets to my think thinking about the possibility that uh, we've got to be more open-minded about migration, immigration, is that, you know, everybody sitting in my congregation, I know they would do anything, anything to give their children a better life, and they would do anything to take them out of danger, and they'd do anything to improve their circumstances. And that if we can just see these people not as some crowd invading the border, but rather as, as people just like us, families who are saying, you know, I've got one crack at trying to save my child's life and make sure they have a better life than I have. And if that means crossing the Rio Grande, I'm going to do it. Now, having said all that, and the people respond well to that, I, I have to tell you, I've never gotten anyone saying, no, you're wrong, they don't belong here. I think everyone has the same misgivings, and I guess you touched on it very much with uh, Senator Balboni, mm -hmm. and that would be, you know, there's a way to do it, and, and are we really helping people by just letting them in with no real plan, no real structure, no real resources, right. and, and taking them around the country, and I mean, in the end, I think we may be doing them a great, great disservice, uh, and I'm, I, you know, I've thought about this very often in terms of the Biden administration. I'm not sure chaos, whether it's in Afghanistan or the southern border, is really to be considered a foreign policy. A foreign policy should be just that, that there's a policy, a plan, where we, we're not just catching up, but we know what's coming and we're ready for it. We're clearly not there. So two really interesting things I just want to underscore, Monsignor Jim Lassant, uh, is the idea of empathy. And when you say to someone, you would do anything for your child, what would you yeah. do for your child? What sacrifice would you make? I think anyone could relate to that and say, yeah, I get it. However, however, uh, the lack of leadership that I think you so rightly point out makes it worse 
obviously for the migrants because they're being shuffled around and 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 but that also leads to their demonization yes. because they are seen as this horde this unwashed horde invading our communities and that's certainly not good for them either you know, this may sound like a strange comparison, but Pope Francis always says when you're dealing with the homeless, you know, most of us are inclined to drop a buck in, in the, the, the can and walk on. But he said, we'll never get anywhere with the problem of homelessness unless you stop, crouch down, look this person in the eye, tell them, my name is Jim, what's your name? Find out something about them that makes them not just the homeless, but rather an individual person, a child of God, just like everyone else. And I think the same thing is true here. We're seeing these videos of thousands of people coming over our borders, and they are, as you say, the Horde, but if if you just got to know even one of them, you'd say, okay, this guy's coming from Salvador, mm-hmm. uh, impoverished, um, frightened by terrible gangs down there, living with a corrupt government, and is just saying, I've got to do something for the sake of my children. I think most Americans are very fair-minded when it comes to, yeah, just as it worked for us, you know, in in my own case, the Italian side came in the 1880s, the Irish side came in the 1820s, both of them came from abject poverty, both of them came to America because it represented hope, and I think for these folks coming through the southern border that's that's what it's all about and i don't want to see us as you said demonizing anyone but i'm afraid that's exactly what's happening and that's what i think a lack of leadership does you know i I want to step back for a minute and ask you uh you know when you have these kinds of conversations with your congregants i think that you can be a really good role model for how to diffuse a situation and come up with a solution so when people are sitting around their dinner tables or they're talking to their neighbors and they find they disagree about something and it gets really hot and it gets really heated and they can't seem to find common ground, what is your advice? Do you have any, and more than just advice, like actual techniques for people to use where they can, they can calm it down and perhaps maybe even have a little influence in finding that common ground. (laughs) That would be a nice thing. I think with all preaching, uh, what you've got to do is include yourself as a person who struggles with the same issues they do. I I read the newspapers and I watch TV and I'm horrified by what's happening at the southern border, not not just for what's happening to America in terms of even letting bad apples in people who will certainly commit crimes, but also – for the way we're treating these people as things instead of as persons with a, an individual value that's given to them by God himself. But I, I tell them I struggle with this. And well, I'll give you another example with the death penalty. On, on paper, the church is totally against the death penalty, and I am too, intellectually. Mm-hmm. But I said one time, you know, when, when one of my sisters was missing on the subway, I remember in my gut, my first reaction was, anybody hurts my sister, I'll kill them. Yeah. And, and I thought, that that's very human, you know. And I tell my people that, here's why the church is against the death penalty, but let's Let's be honest. A lot of us feel it's warranted because we've got to get in touch with our feelings. Anytime we're trying to lead discussion, whether it's in church or at home, we've got to place ourselves in the position of struggling with the same issues. It's when church people of all religions get lofty and above it all and tell you what to do without talking about their own yeah. struggles that I think they cause us to uh, turn them off. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the interesting thing about the death penalty is – you know, because we are human beings, we are emotional. If someone, you know, hurt my child or my husband or even my dog, I would be, I would think about vengeance very seriously. (laughs) So maybe it's good that I'm not necessarily in charge of meeting out the justice, that it can go to some impartial, you know, judicial entity. Uh, Something I'm going to address soon, and I haven't decided how to go with it, but I'm sure most of your listeners are very sensitive to it, is this situation with the homeless guy and the Marine who inadvertently choked him. But, you know, uh, in my parish, I know there are a lot of people saying, you know, how can they they indict this guy? He was trying to do a good deed, and he maybe went too far. And then the other thing I'm hearing from people is, you know, if if this white Marine did this to a white homeless man, would we have the same fuss? Mm -hmm. And and that's a a real legitimate question that we are so divided racially, right? now that we interpret everything through the prism of race. And and I think we need to talk about uh, what is the responsibility there to step in when you're on a subway and you see something happening, you think it's going to go wrong, and then how far can you go? When should you stop? But the only way we're going to ever come to common ground on any of these issues is, I think, to uh, try to put ourselves in the shoes, for instance, of the guy from El Salvador trying to save his family. And we don't do that often enough. You know, I, you know, and I've always said I'm a thousand percent pro-life, but I've tried to 
million times to say, but if I'm this woman who is caught in the circumstance and, and I'm terrified of having this child and I don't have support, what might I be inclined to do? And I, I try to see it from the perspective of everybody involved in the particular issue. And the more we do that, you know, instead of this, in this American divide of one side is all good, one side is all evil, and you know, and I know that's not true. Of course. You know, once in your Jim Lassant, I think it, so much of this boils down to empathy. Uh, and, and can I understand how this person feels? Can I see them as a real human being? And I, I think the way things are going in our society, you can blame social media, you can blame the political climate, you can blame, uh, you know, the breaking down of institutions and of feelings of community, but there, there is a sense of a, of, of a growing, and I hope I'm wrong here, I hope it's me catastrophizing a little bit, a growing feeling of dehumanization of what people see as the other. Yeah. So uh, I, the I homeless right. person, the migrant, the Republican, the Democrat, right. the black, right. the white, whatever it is. No, no doubt about that. And even in terms of understanding the personalities we're dealing with, I, I'm always horrified, as we all are, by the shootings, by the random shootings. But I, I try, if I can, to say, okay, it's not just some young man, faceless, who's crazy, and we write him off as one more bad example of someone who needs gun control or psychological help. But what's the story in the family? I, mm-hmm. I say often when I'm baptizing a child, you know, the more troubling thing in these shootings for me is not just the shooting that day, but the next day when they go to interview the parents of this boy who say, I had no clue. I didn't know he was sick. I didn't know he was disturbed. He seemed like a good kid to me. And you wonder, where are we at? Where we're so disjointed in terms of understanding one another, even in our own families, where, as you touched on before, we can't even talk about issues without saying, well, you know, I've got a, I've got a Hillary person in this corner and a Trump person in that corner, a Biden person in the other corner, Obama person. And in the end, we're all, I hope, just American people trying to pull it all together because, let's face it, Laura, we're looking at a world that's very, very dangerous. And the only time we've achieved greatness in this country is when we manage to pull it together and remember we're part of the same human family. You know, it's funny you brought up the case about Jordan Neely and Daniel Penny, that the, the choke hold on the F train. Right. Uh, the I interviewed a man named Tom Kenneth who ran against Alvin Bragg, and it turns out he's the guy now who's representing the Marine, uh, Daniel Penny, which is very interesting. There was a very strange parallel to that story recently. Um, I was reading in the paper, also on the subway in Brooklyn, Two people were fighting. Somebody tried to intervene and calm it down. He ended up getting slashed in the face. So, right. you know, are people now will, – will, will these two stories, will these horrible events cause people to just complete, you know, even more shut down and not care about their neighbor? That's another thing to worry about. You know, Laura, I'm old enough that I've been engaging with a lot of my friends on, on this issue, and they'll say to me, oh, well, don't you remember Bernard Getz? And I, oh, I remember a huge, huge difference, though. And huge, apparently, he was so frustrated by crime on the subway that he kind of went on the subway looking for trouble and well-loaded with guns to shoot anyone who would approach him. And, and that's a great tragedy that it happened. But this guy, Penny, it seems to me, just said, okay, I see something happening. I see it's dangerous, and I've got to step in. Did he go too far? Too far? Probably did. But you do get a sense that uh, that you're right, that we're going to be fed this idea that the best thing you can do is to stay uninvolved. And that's never good for any society. The more willing to step forward and, in fact, stand up to the bully or the criminal and do what we can, the better for everyone. Uh, who wants to sit by and watch something horrible go on and say, I should have, could have, would have, instead of doing what we can do? But I think you're right. Uh, these indictments sometimes frighten people from doing anything at all. Just like, as you know, this ridiculous anti-police feeling is sometimes discouraging some of our best people from stepping forward to be police officers. And I'll I'll talk to them. I said, but you always talked about this as a dream of yours. I know, but now there's so much prejudice against law enforcement people. And I hate to see that happen. Great people should be in law enforcement. Most people in law enforcement are terrific people. You know, I make a comparison at church, which may sound strange, but I say, look, we heard this bad story about a police officer this week. I would compare it to the same bad stories you probably heard about priests. Uh, the bad guys and the priests that have made up 4% of the priests, 96% of the priests would never, have never, will never hurt a child. But right now, we're all tarred by that same brush. In the same way with the police officers, there's this uh, inclination to lump everyone together when you and I both know that we're so grateful that law enforcement is out there for us and that the majority of them are doing their job as they should with honor. 
You know, the demonizing of police officer, I, I, police officers, it makes me very, very sad because these are people who are doing a very difficult and dangerous job. And yeah. they're really between us and total anarchy. And, uh, you know, of course, either you could talk about teachers, you could talk about priests, police, journalists, politicians. I mean, yeah. and there, there's, you know, there's some screwballs in, in all of them. <laughs> that doesn't mean we demonize them all. Uh, Monsignor Jim Lassant, I want to thank you so much, uh, not just for coming on the show today, but for being a voice of reason and for helping us all kind of calm down and see the humanity in others. I think if we can just take the time to do that, we can make the world just a teeny tiny bit better. I hope you're right, Laura. You know, our church, thank God, at our leader, Lourdes, has been very, very filled. And one of the things people will say to me all the time is, we all know the gospel stories, but what have they got to do with our life in 2023? And I think by talking about the issues that you so beautifully raised today in church and tie them to gospel, we can see our way, hopefully, into a better world. And thank you for what you're doing to, to give us an opportunity to converse about these things that really, really matter. You're a gift, Laura. Thank you so much. Thank you, Monsignor Jim, Jim Lasanti, and a very happy Mother's Day to your mom, who is 102? 102, that's right. God She's bless. She's having a good day. I just gave her a presence, and, oh. and thank you for remembering Cecilia. Thank you so much, Laura. Happy Mother's Day yourself. Thanks so much. Bye-bye now. Bye. All right, next on Cut to the Chase, we're going to shift gear to cannabis. Big news in cannabis here in New York. We're going to find some changes. Uh, we're going to talk about it with Brad Racino. In the meantime, please call 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. I want to hear from you. I want to talk to you, dear listener. Yes, you. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Cut to the Chase. Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Welcome back to Cut to the Chase. All right. We have talked about the migrant crisis. It's really the news dominating the country right now. But I want to get a little more local. So, you know, I walk through Midtown Manhattan very regularly and I smell a lot of weed uh, try not to get that contact high as I walk by, especially when I come to do the radio. But, you know, with all of these illicit shops you're seeing, there's about 1,400 in New York City alone. That's six times as many as there are Starbucks in the five boroughs. Um, did you know that only eight shops, weed shops in New York State are actually legit? Four of them are in the city, four are in the rest of the state. Um, it's been really difficult for the legitimate actual businesses, you know, allowed by the state to open. These other ones are all illegal. But there was a lot of news in cannabis world, in legal cannabis world here in New York State this week. And I've been following it closely, but it's kind of hard to explain. So I have recruited Brad Racino. He is editor and publisher of New York Cannabis Insider, which is actually the only publication covering New York State's emerging cannabis industry, if you can believe it. So, Brad, welcome to Cut to the Chase. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So I really enjoy your, I get your 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 daily email news blast. Uh, it's very interesting stuff. Two big pieces of, actually more than two, a lot of news last week. Uh, as you reported, I believe exclusively, a group of what are called conditional adult use retail dispensary licensees. That's a very long way of saying people who have been justice involved and are getting licenses to open cannabis shops um, are getting frustrated. They sent a letter late last Tuesday to all of the state agencies and people dealing with cannabis. What did they say? Well, that's a little bit hard to synthesize. I'll try my best. But basically, these folks have been scrambling for months and months and months now. Um, some of them were licensed as early as last November. Try and then what they're trying to do is find real estate to open their shops. And they're also trying to find money to do it. And the main state agency that is overseeing that part of the state's rollout is DASNY, the Dormitory Authority of the state of New York. So these folks put pen to paper, signed their names, and basically called out DASNY on 13 separate grievances um, outlining the ways that the agency has basically either gotten in their way or prevented them from moving on um, and, and getting these spaces, whether that's DASNY is actually competing for real estate with these licensees 
or DASNY has not provided the funding that they said that they were going to when this whole program started more than a year and a half ago or a year ago. Um, it's, it's a very long and detailed list of, of problems, but suffice to say, it's, um, it's a long time coming. We've been hearing about all of these problems for six to nine months now, mm-hmm. uh, but this is the first time that a group of them actually signed their names to a paper and sent it to the authority. So these are folks who are trying to get their businesses opened. Uh, there was supposed to be, you're right, help from DASNY, the, the state agency, the dormitory, dormitory authority for the state of New York. And uh, they were going to be working with a social equity cannabis investment fund to raise, what was it, $150 million to help these folks, these justice-involved folks, open their businesses, find real estate, build it out, get it going. Um, of Is it? Am I correct with 150 million? Yes, you nailed it. And how much has been actually raised of that money? As far as we know, zero dollars. Okay. <laughs> and <laughs> was it risky for these people? Obviously, they need to work with the state. They probably need to have feel like they have to have a good relationship with the state uh, because they're kind of dependent on them for this. Is it? Is it? Was it risky for them to do this? To be so yeah, public? I, I mean. I would say so, but I think that also goes to show how serious the situation has become. Um, like I said, these people have been complaining about the same issues for a very long time to me and amongst others and you know, amongst people in the industry, um, but never have they just come right out and said it and put their names on it because they are afraid. I mean, many have told me that they're super afraid of um, angering the agency. Of, there, there's a lot, lot of different ways DASNY could retaliate if they wanted to. And I think some of these folks have heard through the grapevine that DASNY has done that for people who have uh, caused a problem. And, uh, for example, DASNY is trying to place some of these licensees into these gigantic real estate spots that would <laughs> that would be very hard for any accomplished business person to pay the rent on. And when some of these people pass on these spots, they don't hear from DASNY again like for months or ever. Um, mm. And so it seems like it's it's an extremely risky move to uh, to come out out and say it and, and have your name attached to it. I'm speaking with Brad Racino, editor and publisher of New York Cannabis Insider, and you are listening to Laura Curran on Cut to the Chase. So the plot thickened a little bit, Brad. Uh, the Cannabis Association of New York, which is sort of the trade association for pretty much all of the legal business, cannabis business in New York State, kind of signed on to these uh, card, it's conditional adult use retail dispensary licensees, signed on saying, yeah, you know what, we're with you guys, we agree. So there was a bit of a pile on there against the state. Yeah, um, and, you know, the the, the canny group, um, they are representing a lot of the state's farmers and processors, also retailers as well, but they are affected by what DASNY is doing as well, because these farmers were promised that there would be X number of stores open by now. I think Governor Hochul said back in October that by this point there would be close to 80 or 100 retail stores open. And as you said in the, in the intro, there are eight. Mm-hmm. And so these farmers have nowhere to sell their product that they grew yeah. on the state's promise. So what happens to the so, product? So it just gets it degrades over time. I mean, it's still salvageable at this point, but what's happening is a lot of these farmers, because they're not selling their product, they're not making money, so they don't have money to put back into this year's grow. And so the question is, is anyone going to actually huh. be growing <laughs> growing marijuana this year wow. because they're all going bankrupt? They're, so they're they can't really sell it. Place. They can't sell it out of state. That's part of the law, right? Right, right. Yeah, you know, this all needs to stay in New York. Wow. Has there been a response from the state on these concerns? Not yet. I mean, DASNY did say in a statement to us um, that, you know, they take the concerns seriously, something like that, and that they're open to meeting with this group. That's as much information as we got from them. Um, so we'll see how it develops. But that's that's about it. So, Brad, through your reporting, you cover this very closely. As I said, uh New York Cannabis Insider is the first and only publication covering the New York State's cannabis industry. Uh, What is going on in the state that it's so problematic? Do you know where the problem is? That's a really complicated question. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I mean, to to Even just just like us, you know, 90,000 
view, foot view? Yeah. I mean, you know, at the 90,000 view, it is that, number one, New York is trying to do this legal cannabis industry differently than anyone has ever done. They're trying to do it to mitigate from the war on drugs, to have social equity really be the... the Which is noble and worthy. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're, they're, they're trying this new game plan. That's number one. Number two was there was such a lag between when cannabis was legalized in New York and this regulatory body, the Office of Cannabis Management, yes. got up and running, that that allowed for this proliferation of all these unlicensed shops, which has become the number one problem um, outside of you know these retailers not being able to find space. That is a huge concern. On top of that, you have DASNY now in the mix, which is this super opaque government agency that even politicians that I've talked to don't really understand how it works. Hmm. And they are getting involved in a way that there's no transparency and there is zero accountability, zero accountability. Um, And so you have them working with the Office of Cannabis Management. The two have presented a unified front, but over the last six to nine months, uh, the cracks have become very apparent. And just just to be clear, these are both state agencies. Right. Well, DASNY is, I think, considered a quasi-state agency or an authority. Oh, it's an authority. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, th- so there's that. Then there are egos at play. There are very mm. strong egos within certain these agencies. Then there's just the fact that at the end of the day, and I know a lot of people in the legal industry, marijuana industry, don't want to hear this, but at the end of the day, it's cannabis we're talking about. And mm. New York has such bigger issues on its plate that a lot of the politicians who maybe could affect change right. are not really paying that close attention. They're not engaged because we're dealing with migrants and funding and policing and, and everything else and is going on. And public yeah. Health. But yeah, all these bigger things that affect so many more people. I think that is also a really big thing that not a lot of people talk about. It's just the reality of it. Like, But then it really meanwhile, is. you've got all of these illicit shops operating, not paying taxes. There's no quality control. You don't know what the heck you're getting. I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy anything <laughs> if I were to consume marijuana many of these illicit shops. Um, So the other question I have for you is this, and then I got to let you go in about 90 seconds. Uh, Because, you know, let's say everything goes well and everyone gets their act together and the regular shops can open, the legitimate shops can open. They got to charge taxes. They're going to charge more money because there was this big lag time where it was decriminalized and these illicit guys could open they could do, you know, people, their muscle memory, their shopping muscle memory is going to, they're going to go to where they, where they are, have been getting their product for a cheaper price because they don't have to pay taxes. Do you think that this lag is going to end up hurting the legitimate business in the end? Oh, yeah, of course. Absolutely. Um, but there, there's also, it's, again, the 90,000 foot view, it's state government getting involved in something. And what that means is more taxes, more admin, more overhead. And so not even the illicit shops. I mean, before the illicit shops sprang up, people were buying weed in New York. They would get it delivered. They get it from their guy or their yeah. girl, whatever. Yeah. And it was, it was always relatively cheap. But now if they look at the legal stores, you're looking at two to three times the cost of what people who have been smoking their whole lives are used to seeing. And that's because of all the taxes and the overhead and all this other stuff. So it's not just the illicit market. It's it's all the extra hurdles that the state has placed in this process to make it really, really difficult for these people to succeed. Plus federal, you know, it's, it's illegal federally, which has a lot to do a lot with like tax implications and such for these small businesses. So it was a noble goal to have justice involved people, people who had been hurt by the marijuana trade in the past to give them, you know, a bit of a head start here. But it seems that the bureaucracy has broken down and uh, the priorities are elsewhere. And unfortunately, it's going to hurt some legitimate businesses. But who knows? I'm going to be hopeful, Brad, and I'm going to be continuing to read the New York Cannabis Insider uh, to see what's going on. Hopefully it will sort itself out and this will be good for everyone. <laughs> I hope I'm not, you know, smoking something to make me say that. But Brad, I really want to thank you so much and we'll have you on again as things progress. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to be here. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, listeners, I'm going to you. Rob, Oceanside, what do you got for me? Good to, good to talk, Laura, good to talk to you. Hey, listen, you know what? Four years ago, we didn't have this discussion at all about Illegal immigrants. Migrants are someone that comes back and forth. It's a politically correct term. We shouldn't be politically correct in this country. We're going to lose this country. 
We have to secure the border like we did under President Trump, right? So what are you thinking? So uh, can I assume that you'll be voting in the Republican primary? Yes, I will. And I'm voting for President Trump. I'm sick and tired of this country being last. Mm. I work two jobs, Laura, okay? And you know what? This country has gone backwards. I'm 51 years old, okay? This isn't the country I grew up in, okay? We need to take the country back to show our borders, law and order in our cities, okay, and protect the people, the taxpayers, the working class in this country. Take care of America first, our veterans, okay? Not kick our veterans out of, out of hotels to, to put illegal immigrants in and to clothe them. And, Lauren, you know as better as I do, okay, that when they come into these municipalities, say like Baldwin, okay? Where I live, right next get, door to you right, in Oceanside. Right, right, right. School districts are taxed. Your school district tax goes higher, okay? Yeah. You have to hire ESL teachers. So I want to ask you something. Of, of all of the folks, you know, DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, all these people who are running for the Republican nomination, why do you think Trump is the one to solve this problem, not this other crew? Laura, yeah. he's done it before, Laura. He did it in 47 months. He did more than Joe Biden ever did. Should I go down? I, no, you know what? I, I want to go to another caller, but I'm really happy that you called, Rob. Please call again. And this is, this is something I want to tell people who are saying, oh, Trump could never win. You know what? A lot of people feel like Rob does. And, you know, they want someone who they feel is in charge and will actually run things and put an end to bad things. And, you know, I think a lot of the other candidates are not making the same case. Tony on Long Island. Where on Long Island are you, Tony? I'm out in uh, Suffolk County, and let me tell you something, Lauren. Laura. <clears throat> it's a, it's, it's, Laura, it's become a bizarro world. Hasn't and, uh, it? A brother, American, a brother American Marine intervenes and saves everyone on that subway car, and now he's facing manslaughter charges. Tony, are you, a, are you a former Marine also? You're never a former Marine. If you, if you don't disgrace the car, once an American Marine, always an American Marine, sempre un americano marino. Now, the bottom line is this, Lauren, is that after all that was said and done, I intervened when I was in Manhattan. When Did you? The Rob stopped the bus and stood in front of the bus, tried to force his way in to get the driver. And wow. I and the dog went up there out of the wheelchair and forced him to leave, told her to hit the horn so the cops showed up. Now, he can't be held for bail. He could be held in psychiatric evaluation. I don't know if I'm going to do that again. Yeah, that's the concern. Tony, I want to thank you for your service, and thanks for the call. Ralph in New Jersey. Okay. Uh, you know, this whole situation that's going on in the southern world uh, is intentional and deliberate action by justifying this poor excuse of a leadership who has failed to plan and, uh, and uh, who is planning to fail. And and uh, that this is we come to this point of you know a complete total chaos, anarchy, and failure because of his failure to plan, uh, Laura. Ralph, where are you from? You sound like you're from perhaps the Caribbean. Uh, no, I'm from uh, the, the uh, from Asia, from the Philippines. Oh, oh, Ralph, thank you so much for calling. I really appreciate it. Thanks to all of our listeners for listening today. And next, we're going to have Ernie Anastas and Patricia Stark for Positively Speaking with Ernie and Patricia. I, I hope uh, they lift your spirits and get you ready for the week, as they always do. All right, peace out, everyone. Talk to you next time.